I would say it also begs another question, which is, okay, um, so she has this causal and, and you know, you've, you've read the paper, so maybe you know the, the answer to this, but I, I'm just curious about it. I, I was going to read the paper myself to kind of see if she discusses it. But what I wonder is, okay, if symbolic subordination, you know, which is, I think, a fancier way to say re- representation, creates material disadvantage by reinforcing, you know, these racial stereotypes and it creates these, th- this representation creates th- disadvantages such as everything from employment to education. What created the symbolic subordination? And th- that's what I'm really kind of curious about. Like, where did these negative stereotypes and symbolism um, come from? And how far can you stretch this logic? Can someone say that maybe even slavery? Because I I can think of material disadvantage going back all the way to slavery and colonialism. Like, through this whole history of the country, you know, uh, material disadvantage of Black people has been baked into the whole history. I mean, Black people were brought into this country in the most material disadvantage you could think of, which is being a slave. So if if representation Representation or slash symbolic subordination creates material disadvantage, then does it pre- even predate slavery? You know, like, like, I mean, I think just looking at history, like you said, just kind of shows us a ridiculous claim. Like, you know, um, you know, like, like when they're sitting around thinking, hey, um, since people are inferior, they might as well be slaves. Like, no, they had economic need for slaves and it kind of helped their cognitive dissonance or helped the justification of their project to, it, it was in their racial interest, you know, to believe that these people were inferior because it makes easier to 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 enslave people but, but but that's the thing i find this most um fascinating about this passage is this idea of of you know what creates a symbolic subordinate i feel like that that question alone mm-hmm. undoes the whole passage you know yeah i mean yeah i think that this is interesting you know too because like if we go back to the realist approach and we say well the ideas are generated by someone's interest within a particular material structure then you can kind of give a genetic account of where ideas come from uh for the idealist approach it's sort of just the power of the mind but then like this is very strange at least to me um you know about uh about why would it why would it be created in the first place um and i mean if we go back and study uh 17th century virginia you can actually give a lot of weight to the realist approach um you know i i know that uh even from howard zinn uh, up to the 1619 project the idea is that the first you know 20 and some black people africans who were brought to north america and arrived at jamestown they came as slaves and that's when slavery began um but that's not what the historical record actually suggests um the historical records suggest that um, even the African um, uh, descended people that were brought to the Virginia colony weren't held as lifetime slaves as as chattel because some of them were able to work through their indentured servant uh, contracts and get land. One prominent example of this is a man named Anthony Johnson, who was an African man in the Virginia colony, worked through his indentured uh, time and was given land in, I believe it was the 1640s. And he had a plantation with other indentured servants on them, white and black alike. And uh, that's because in the 1640s, race wasn't the ultimate um, category of social stratification. Economic class was. And so if 
he could get out, get land, and move up in that economic class, then he would be part of the social structure. And early on in the colony, it wasn't really economically viable to have lifetime slaves because most people who were brought there as indentured servants, whether from uh, uh, Britannia or Ireland or um, West Africa, they didn't live out their five to seven years of indentured servitude. And so uh, it wouldn't make any sense to buy a person for life if they're just going to die in a couple of years. But it does make sense to indenture them for a few years. And, you know, if they don't make it to the end or they make it close to the end, then that's fine. Um, and if they make it out the other side, you know, then they have some kind of claim to be given land. But people started living longer and longer as the colony went on over the decades. So by the time you get to the 1660s, now you've got all these indentured servants who, who because the life expectancy was going up, they were living out their contracts and they were demanding land. But the uh, government of the of the of Britain didn't want to give them land because they were trying not to have conflicts with the Native Americans nearby. And so this emerges as Bacon's Rebellion, which is often sort of pointed at as like working class racial solidarity, black laborers and white laborers fighting the elite planter class for their own interests. Now, there's some celebration to be had there, but we also have to remember that what they were what they were demanding is the displacement of Native Americans so that they could have land. So there is still a colonialist aspect to that. Um, but it wasn't actually economically viable to have slaves in 1619. It wasn't until the later part of that century where you have um, where life expectancy is longer. So it does make sense to, from an economic standpoint, if you want to own a human being to do it. But also now there's this other social control interest of saying, well, we need to make different classes of laborers so that they don't all get together and see themselves as having the same interests. And when you actually study that um, 17th century Virginia, um, you get this really fascinating mix of all these kinds of things and what we would call chattel slavery, racialized um, rule, white supremacy, these sorts of things emerging. Um, they did so, they evolved out of this historical context. It wasn't like they just existed when, um, you know, uh, in 1619, they were actually created by all this conflict and they were seen as solutions to to perceived problems by the by the planter classes and, and by the rulers of the colony and, and so on. And so, I think, you know, when we look at those kinds of things, we can see how the realist approach makes perfect sense of all that, whereas the idealist approach, I think, leaves us at, leaves us with questions that need to be answered. Well said, well said. I, I wanted to um, move to the next part of your, your article, which I think is the real, I mean, like what we're talking about with the whole um, idea that symbolism creates material um, problems, I think is um, very problematic, but it pales in comparison to what happens in her next two papers, which I think are the two that people really um, laud and, and are the ones that actually, I, I believe are considered the origin of um, intersectionality as a, as a coined, as a coined philosophy. But those, um, these these are the ones that you say tie into an unquestionable racist and colonial intellectual history. Uh, one a history that is only beginning to be excavated and acknowledged. Um, that's 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 from your paper. Those words and the two law papers are demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex: a feminist critique of anti-discrimination doctrine.
Doctrine, Feminist Theory and Anti-Racist Politics. That's from 1989. And the second one is, and this is the one that you said is the seriously problematic one, the one that really um, ties into uh, racist and colonial intellectual history. That's Mapping the Margin, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color. That's 1991. So it's 1989 and 1991, these two papers. And this is going to be uh, kind of nuanced and, and have a lot of different connections. For people listening, you're going to really want to pay attention to uh, this portion. I think it's the crux of the whole the whole accusation. And, and would you mind, uh, I guess, getting started with the first the first paper, um, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, and what happens in that one? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the original problem that Crenshaw is trying to answer, I think, is uh, pretty salient. You know, she's like, look, under anti-discrimination law, Black people are a protected class. Likewise, women are a, a protected class. But what she was finding in her review of case law is that the courts, when Black women would make a discrimination claim in court, the courts were asking, okay, well, you've been discriminated against. Are the white women being discriminated against too? And if the answer was no, then they would say, well, then I guess that means you're not the victim of sex discrimination. And likewise, Black women would say, we've been discriminated. And they say, well, are the Black men being discriminated against Two. And if the answer was no, then they would say, well, I guess you're not the victims of racial discrimination then. And so what Crenshaw wanted to do is carve out a place in the law where black women would be considered a protected class. And that way they would be able to bring discrimination cases uh, against employers that were, were guilty of doing this um, without having to prove that black men were also being racially discriminated or without uh, having to prove that white women were being discriminated on the base of sex. And I, th I actually think this is just cool, right? Like this is a pretty, this is a pretty interesting argument, very clever solution. Um, and in terms of solving this legal problem, uh, politically and intellectually, I don't really have that much of a problem with this paper. So, um, you know, uh, for all of the criticisms of intersectionality that I might have as, as a scholar, um, this, this paper is not where I think the problems are at. Um, it's in the follow-up paper. And I had mentioned earlier that it was no longer about the intersectionality is now, now no longer about black women, but about women of color, a really strange term, right? I mean, if we're talking about, oh, we have to acknowledge difference. Well, what better way to erase differences among women of different uh, languages, nationalities, economic classes, um, and, and so on by using this, you know, very strange term, women of color. But so that's one issue I think that that is a problem. But um, the other problem here is more philosophical. In her first paper on intersectionality, she's trying to solve a problem within American law, and particularly discrimination law. Fine. In the next paper, she's actually trying to make it a generalized theory of society. And this is where she moves from solving a legal question to making like ontological and sociological claims. The first paper, I think, holds up as a very interesting analysis of of a problem in anti-discrimination law. The second paper um, wades into a whole bunch of problematic area that just doesn't jive with intellectual history or um, uh, empirical reality, um, as, as, as we might be able to measure by various data sets. And um, so, yeah, so I think that that transition is where we um, is where we start to, to see the problem. And of course, there is this background assumption that there are these so-called single axis theories. Um, perhaps Marxism is the is the single axis theory for 
economic class, and feminism is the single axis theory for uh, looking at sex or gender oppression, depending on what decade you're in uh, for those two terms, or, or realist CRT can account for race. And so intersectionality claims, we're going to bring all these three things together. Well, for starters, <laughs> Marxism isn't a single uh, axis framework. It doesn't just look at class. It looks at all sorts of different stuff. And maybe it doesn't have a really good theory about racial oppression or, or gender stuff. But it's, I mean, Engels has his famous essay on the family and um and Marx and Engels have all sorts of writings on uh chattel slavery in the United States the colonization of Ireland by England and uh the colonization of India by England they wrote about all this kind of stuff of uh, the French in Algeria so it's not like they're single axis. Um, the problem would just be that they don't give us a good analysis. Um, same thing for feminism. It's not like feminism doesn't account for class or race. It, it does and it can. Maybe it just doesn't do it well, but it's not necessarily just single axis. And actually, I would say if any of these are just single axis, it's feminism, um, as it was practiced in the 70s and early 80s um, when Crenshaw was coming up. Um, and then critical race theory. Derek Bell talks about gender in his work, um, and he talks about class. We've seen the neo-colonial critique. If you read, um, uh, what's that book? Gospel Choirs, or even just the later uh, chapters of we And We Are Not Saved, one of his one of his first books. I mean, there's there's stuff about gender and class all over that. So it's not like what Bell was doing with his own critical race theory was single axis. So the the very premise that there's all these things that only look at one thing, and we're going to look at multiple things at the same time, uh, that claim in and of itself is just sheer nonsense. Um, in fact, if we go back, and this is this is sort of just a, a side note, but if we go back to this question about, well, intersectionality was created by Black women because they were looking at multiple things, I, I want to bring up Eldridge Cleaver, Soul on Ice, flip to the back of the book, second to last chapter, The Primeval Mitosis. Cleaver gives us an entire analysis of not only race and class and sex and or gender, actually both, I would say, and sexuality. So Cleaver is looking at multiple axes all at once and coming up with a theory of how they fit together. Now is are Cleaver's uh, descriptions or prescriptions um, accurate or good? Well, this could be debated. But what can't be debated is that he's looking at race, class, gender, sex, um, sexuality, all these different kinds of things. Um, and I'm not the first person to notice that. I mean, uh, other people have noted this in, in the scholarship. And so the question is, is Cleaver doing intersectionality? Now, Cleaver is like one of the most hated figures in the modern history of feminism. So I can't, I can't imagine meeting an intersectional feminist who would want to say that Cleaver was doing intersectionality, but yet he was looking at all these things. He was doing a, a so-called multi-axis analysis. So why isn't that intersectionality? And I just pose this as a question just to show that somebody who didn't even go to college, like Eldridge Cleaver, he says he, he got his education on the, on the streets it's his higher uneducation, but he's able to do this sort of thing, you know? Uh, and he's, I think, you know, considered the antithesis of what, of what late 20th century feminism was supposed to be. And so, uh, the fact that he's doing this so-called intersectional analysis or this multi-axis analysis, I think really sort of, uh, is the counterexample to the kind of, uh, very flat intellectual history that some of the main claims of intersectionality are predicated upon. And of course, I didn't really go into this in the article because this is more of a, of an academic, uh, debate rather than something that was specifically about CRT and, and some of the popular um, political uh, controversies that were going on at the time. But nevertheless, I do think that that's important because 
if the basic orientation of intersectionality can't be squared with a, a broader, deeper intellectual history, well, then that should give us um, cause for thinking about, um, you know, what it's what it's real or supposed intervention actually is. Now, the the um, follow-up paper is the one that you call seriously problematic. Those are those are your words, and that's uh, mapping the margins. And you say that she takes she attempts to take intersectionality out of the realm of law and transform it into a generalized theory of society. And I think that's kind of not kind of that is important because it was a legal theory, and I do think it's better suited as a legal theory. I mean, I think it has its limitations even as a legal theory because I think it's totally possible for maleness and blackness to intersect in a way that hurts black men in the legal in the legal realm as well but you know at the very least i think it is better suited as a framework as a legal framework than a generalized um theory of uh society and you say this the basic assumption of intersectionality is that all previous theories are single axis that account for only one dimension of oppression at a time so feminine feminism accounts for sex or gender critical race theory of the original derrick bell Wheeler school only accounts for race and Marxism accounts for class. And this is something that drives me crazy that its proponents like say to this day when you interact with them, like, they, they, like intersectionality is the first thing to ever take more than one of these things into account in its own framework. So you say the innovation of intersectionality, as we are told, is that it brings together the insights of these theories to account for race, gender, and class simultaneously, though class is never present in so-called intersectional um, analyses. Now, I think it's kind of crazy whether you like feminism or not. I think it's crazy to think that feminism did not take into consideration um, race or class. I mean, there's plenty of feminist theories, theorists, whether you like their um, conclusions or not. There's plenty of thinking, talking, and writing about, you know, race and class. And in this paper, you actually talk about some of the more heinous writings of feminists on race, you know, but they have a lot of thoughts about race historically, uh, white fem white feminists. Crazy to think that they don't. And a lot of the sex work discourse has a lot of class talking to it, you know, and same for Marxism. Like Marxism, um, you know, has a lot of writers and and discussions about race and, and gender and, and sex, even if you might not necessarily agree with its conclusions on those things um it, it you know what it reminds me of um i, I don't want to go down this um digression it's just an offhand um observation i remember when i used to read a lot of uh, race and iq uh, literature because i used to kind of like uh hate read it just kind of understand like the arguments one of the interesting things that they used to always do was act like nobody really was talking about the um interplay between genetics and environment until until um the race and iq people like they like they went from being a theory about how gender, how genetics and environment interact to claiming that they discovered um, that everybody before them was either a genetic determinist or um, a blank slate person. And and I just want to make an aside that that's what this kind of kind of reminds me of. But um, yeah, so I kind of wanted to start there, like this idea that uh, of the single axis theories and intersectionality as the world's first multi-axis theory, you know, and and then kind of kind of go from there. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I think you're, I think you're right, you know, and, and thinking about, um, or in this example, right, of, of race and IQ people saying, um, you know, it was, it was one theory about it to becoming the entire field or the entire way of approaching it and, and, and so on. This is what's happened with Marxism. Um, you know, I've been very influenced by Marx in my intellectual trajectory. It's probably why I have such a, a good appreciation for Derek Bell's materialist epistemology because 
because I think, you know, this, the, my first exposure to that was in Marxism. But um, the problem with Marxism, um, among others, is that uh, this is one approach to political economy. I was just having this conversation with some of my friends recently. Marxism, Marx was doing political economy. He wasn't doing Marxism. And now people are Marxists, but they don't say they're doing political economy like all other political economists of the late 18th and 19th century. Um, you know, they said they think they're doing something that Marx invented, but Marx knew what he was doing. Marx was like, I'm doing political economy. And um and so, you know, like that kind of thing of like taking one part of an entire discipline and elevating it to its own ideology is, um, you know, is, is, uh, is a problem. And I think there's a lot of incentive to do this, especially from the early to mid seventies onward in the U.S. academy, because there's all this talk about, oh, we need to criticize the, the neoliberal university and so on. But, you know, let's, let's, let's think about two things here. One, how is it that all these criticisms criticism of the neoliberal university thrive in the neoliberal university or in the, or in a neoliberal society. It's because they're not a threat to it. So that's why they can thrive. But second, think about the way that we started to talk about intellectual history, methodologies, approaches, once the so-called neoliberal turn of, of the mid to late 70s occurred. Well, we started talking about like, well, you know, there's economic class and Marxism talks about that as if it's a proprietary issue that Marxism talks about. And then, oh, there's sex or gender. Well, feminism talks about that. That's their area. Other theories, they don't talk about that. And, you know, uh, some bastardized version of critical race theory or something. Well, that's what talks about race. You know, that's its proprietary area. So then all of these different theories are assumed that, well, the area that it covers is this thing. And so, okay, well, we do this and we cover this problem over here. You guys do that theory. So you cover that problem over there. And now we all have our own proprietary problems that we cover. Oh, do you want to talk about class and you're a feminist? Well, you better damn well read the Marxists. You better cite us because we own that as a problem. We own that as a topic of investigation. And same thing for gender or sex, same thing for race. And what intersectionality did is come about and say, oh, it looks like you all own these different kinds, of, these different areas of, of work. And so what we're going to do is we're going to show how all of this can be blended into a, a different theory. But, um, but that's all very specific to the late 70s through the early 90s. So you have to think about that intellectual milieu to understand how this idea of there are single axis theories, and it is because these kinds of um, intellectual traditions were trying to make themselves salient by saying, this is our problem, this is our question, we own it, and you're not allowed to talk about it unless you cite our stuff, or unless you do our methods, or unless you engage our uh, our work. And um, and so, it's, so it is very neoliberal liberal the way that these so-called non or even anti-neoliberal sort of theories including marxism go this neoliberal way of saying well this is our this is our topic and then intersectionality coming along and saying oh well i guess if all three of these theories uh own these three different problems how can we bring them together but in the longer trajectory of intellectual history that's just a non-problem that was just a problem in the 80s and so um and so i think if we put it into that context we can see how silly the single access thing is in the broad history, but also why that even made sense in the 80s, given that all of these different sort of approaches were trying to justify themselves by saying, we have the, the method, the means of unlocking this problem or investigating this question for research that none of these other theories have. And then that's when it becomes uh, 
necessary or appears to be necessary to try to mix them all into something that became called intersectionality. Um, but if you reject the idea that these theories have proprietary problems that they own and that no one else can can investigate unless they use those methods or engage those texts or whatever, then the whole problem falls apart. And this is why you can read Derek Bell as an economic thinker and also show that he never really cared about Marxism and never read Marxism. So how is it he's doing economics, political economy, never read Marx, right? And uh, and so and so I think that that is uh, I think that's an important part of this uh, of this um, historical context to to take into consideration. Now, there's a the part about patriarch, right? And, um, you know, you, you talk about the problematic aspects of intersectionality are problems that originate in the history of uh, feminism, mainly white feminism. And you draw on the recent scholarship of uh, Tommy Curry to trace out the racist and colonial colonialist ideas of intersectionality. And you start this by talking about the roots of Crenshaw's quote-unquote gender analysis. And and if you want to talk about this part, and I guess you could start with uh, Catherine uh, McKinnon. I thought this was um, a very disturbing uh, thread in this in this article. Uh, you trace a whole bunch of uh, texts that kind of combine together to form what we think of as the intersectional um, viewpoint of Black maleness. And when you see the places where these thoughts come from, well, well, first off, it's not even that surprising because honestly, if you just look at the claims intersectionality makes about black men on their face, they sound horribly racist. So it's not even that much of a of a stress. I mean, the only thing that really makes them not racist is the idea that they're coming um, from the pens of black of black women, supposedly. You know, uh, but uh, I guess it isn't that surprising. But I guess we should start with uh, Catherine McKinnon and make make our way through through the oeuvre. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of this, uh, a lot of this part of the of the analysis is, you know, relies on on Tommy Curry's scholarship. So credit has to go for him for doing some of the the intellectual history work here. Um, and so, you know, when we look at what Crenshaw was doing, she was drawing on Catherine McKinnon. Catherine McKinnon is uh, sort of a leading second wave feminist um, legal scholar um, who, you know was very influential from the late 70s all the way through the 90s and beyond. So, um, and, and Crenshaw talks about how McKinnon started to get her to think about structures of domination in terms of sex difference. And I use the term sex difference, males over females, because that's how it was discussed at the time. And the idea that McKinnon advanced was um, what could be called a male dominance theory. And that's the idea that in the United States, at least, I don't know if she meant, you know, humanity as such, could be um would be very strange claim but um nevertheless um that men males had power over women females right as it was discussed at the time and this was the patriarchal structure and so um when mckinnon would talk about black men for example she would say well yeah you know black men can be discriminated against based on race but they do have male privilege um and crenshaw sort of took this up and said, okay, like, this is how I'll understand sex. Um, and then she was, of course, influenced by Derek Bell, whose analysis of race that we've talked about, you know, and the, the basic structure of racial domination would be white over black, um, or maybe white over non-white, if we want to extrapolate that to other uh, racialized minorities and, and, and groups that have um, 
suffered at the hands of white supremacy in the United States. So what she wanted to do is say, well, let's combine these. But the funny thing is, is that if you read Crenshaw and you read Bell, sorry, if you read Catherine McKinnon and you read Derek Bell, their fundamental principles are contradictory. You can't just put them together, right? One of them says uh, racial domination is foundational. And the other one says that sex domination is foundational. Well, you can't have two things that are foundational. So one would expect that you'd have to identify which one of those of the two who's right. Well, Crenshaw and intersectionality more generally uh, has never done that. And they've shied away from doing it. In fact, they've said, oftentimes I've seen people who uh, advocate intersectionality as saying none of these are foundational, that it depends on context. Well, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot and it's not very useful. So if you can just change what's foundational depending on what your analysis is, you don't really have a solid method that's supposed to render consistent results that are reproducible, scientifically speaking. Um, and so this is a very strange sort of combination, but nevertheless, that's how intersectionality was sort of, was sort of put together originally. And then beyond all of that, we have to actually ask the question, how is it that it even came to be an idea that all men, including black men, would have power over all women, including white women? And that's the historical genealogy that Curry provides us by looking at um, Alva Myrdal's a problem, uh, sorry, a parallel to the Negro problem from 1944, Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex from 1949, and Helen Hacker's Women as a Minority Group from 1955. Um, the idea is that before World War II, there was no such thing as women, broadly speaking, there were racial ethnic groups and there were females that belonged to those groups, just like there were males that belonged to those groups. And no one who's identified as a feminist before the 1960s ever thought about um, there being some kind of universal group of just females. And to the extent that they did, this was always modulated through colonialist ideas of race and ethnicity. Civilization often was the term that was used. And so um, in these essays that that Curry has has brought up uh, and these books that he's brought up, what you see is in the history of feminism, the genesis of this idea that, oh, well, women are kind of oppressed as just a group that caught that cross cuts all of these nationalities, cultures, languages, ethnicities, races. And that idea didn't even start to be developed until after World War II. So by the time you get to the 80s, you actually can have the conditions for someone to believe that you can have a society, multiracial, multiethnic society, where somehow all men, regardless of race and ethnicity, um, have power over all women somehow without regard to race and ethnicity. And so one of the powerful things about what Curry is doing in his scholarship there is trying to give a genetic account, trying to trace out the origins of here's how this even became a thought in the first place. And by finding where it came from and finding how late it was in the in the in the broader history of of, of intellectual history, we can actually appreciate how very new and novel the idea was in the 80s when McKinnon was taking it up and and becoming a main advocate for that idea. So yeah, this idea that um all men have power over all women. You say it was invented by white women in the 50s to claim that they were just as oppressed as black men in a society run by white supremacy. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like um, this has become kind of so accepted that it's kind of interesting to find out that this was um, only started in the 50s. This this idea of uh, patriarchy and how it makes, how it how it unites white women and black women in, in, the, in oppression and how it kind of levels almost the playing field between black men and 
and um, white women. I even saw um, a thread by, I think it was an academic or some kind of uh, so-called activist where she was talking about how the white female slave owner, you know, was uh, subject to patriarchy, but there was a way in which she was um, inferior even to the um, black male slave. And I was like, how is this even taken seriously as as, as an intellectual um, claim, you know? But it was, I mean, people were like kind of arguing with it, but the fact that she, she could actually say this and have people agree just, just um, blew my mind. And when you trace this history in, in Crenshaw's work, you kind of see that uh, people, including myself, can say that this started with um, intersectionality, but it, it really didn't. It's basically almost like a boomerang. It started with white women. Intersectionality kind of picked it up and did what you can call uh, thought laundering, like instead of money laundering, they just kind of uh, did some thought laundering and legitimized this thought and then fed back to white women what they um, originally already wanted to believe. In fact, the rise of intersectionality in and of itself is a perfect example of Derek Bell's idea of um, of interest convergence, you know, and and fake racial progress. Like the, the interest of white feminists and uh, black feminists like Kimberly Crenshaw co- coincided and suddenly we get this so-called racial progress of intersectionality, which is, you know, very much in the interest of of, of white women. And and you mentioned some of the books are Alva Murdao's A Parallel to the Negro Problem, 1944, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, Helen Hacker's Women as a Minority Group from 1955 were examples of white women scholars um, observing the conditions of Black men under Western colonialism and racism and making the case that white women should think of themselves as a similarly oppressed group. And this is a passage from your article. You say, before the essays, white women were prim- were seen primarily as the members of the dominant race, even by white women themselves. In fact, even white feminists saw themselves in this way, as historian Louise Michelle Newman demonstrates in her book, White Women White Women Rights. Yet in the 1950s, white women began claiming that they were oppressed in a man- manner analogous to uh, black men. And it also makes you think of that um, that uh, John Lennon song, like, women are the, are the N-words of the world. But but yeah, it's uh exactly yeah yeah, yeah. it's a, it, um, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to to lay it out right and so then going forward the way that women's you know oppression was talked about especially white women was that somehow their suffering their exploitation their oppression was uh the same as and I would say at some point some feminists took it farther to say it was worse than black men and um and what you get is almost an inversion right from the reality where white women were could own and uh rape and even have black men killed right um to some inverted reality where black men were walking around with all this power and uh you know and and people needed to stick up for white women and, and black women in the face of these black men um who were walking around with all this power and oftentimes it was the white men that were expected to do this which again reinforced the whole white patriarchal structure um and so you know to me that that's just that's just fascinating and that's why earlier um when we were talking about intersectionality being an analytic rather than being empirical um or inductive it was that we start out with these categories of defining who has what oppressions and then we read society through that but when those definitions of who has what uh, oppressions doesn't actually map on to the empirical reality of uh education incarceration 
incarceration, violence, malnutrition, lack of housing or or, um, or adequate housing, um, employment, wealth generation, all these sorts of things, you know, measurable, measurable, um, you know, uh, features of our of our society, then you start to go, huh, how is it that people still believe this thing, even though the overwhelming majority of social scientific evidence suggests that that's not true. Um, and then when you do the intellectual history, that's when you see, oh, here's where this all became obfuscated. Here's where this became uh, modified. Mm-hmm. And here's how we have inherited this um, this change. But if you go back, you know, before that time, all these other theories make perfect sense because that's how the world still works. And, and and you make a great point in this where you say like to kind of create this uh, idea of women as a universally oppressed class in a flattened way that kind of equates white women with um, black women in terms of similar oppression. They have to discard, the, the white feminists have to discard something called the kinship theory of patriarchy. And, the, and that the kinship theory kind of um, goes against this current understanding of um, patriarchy. And, and would you mind just uh, describing the kinship theory and, and, and why it had to be discarded with and who was uh, instrumental in getting it discarded? Yeah, I mean, you know, so the, this kinship view of patriarchy is extended from this idea that there are racial or ethnic groups and that males or females belong to those groups. And that's the primary distinctions. Um, so patriarchy was thought to be within these kinship groups. Well, you know, like, let's say, for example, that you have white people and, you know, and white men are the patriarchs of, of a white community um, or, you know, a system of white family structures. Well, black men are not patriarchs in that system because they're not allowed to marry into those systems. Um, in fact, there's a heavy penalty for anybody who, uh, you know, was accused of wanting to do so in the first place. So, um, and so the idea was that these family, these kinship systems as you know uh, anthropologists and sociologists refer to them uh, that's where patriarchy was built but uh, feminists eventually had to argue against kinship theories of patriarchy because it stood in the way of this idea of women as a universally oppressed class um, and that's not to say that different you know groups of human females or other ways of thinking about women haven't been oppressed they have the question is is how do we properly understand these structures and is the purpose here to um, to describe them accurately so we can wrestle with them or is the purpose to describe a world that feeds a political agenda such that that agenda can be um, at, um, pushed forward and you know I think Curry actually gives us a, a decent summary on this he says the white woman used the body and experience of the Negro specifically the black man as a template by which she created the idea that she was in fact a minority group despite the power and violence she imparted on racial and ethnic groups such as blacks and Jews. And he adds that, quote, the definition of patriarchy that emerged from these debates were driven by the need for white feminists in constructing themselves as a class external to and also, and very importantly, victimized by white patriarchy. So the feminist definition of patriarchy was constructed to protect feminist ideology, not to explain the oppression of various groups throughout history. And so uh, the origin of this shift is in the interest of white women of setting themselves outside the power structure so that they can be positioned, viewed as um, just as much a victim of the power structure as all these other groups. 
And there's a great quote from your uh, piece that I think sums this up well. You said, Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality relies on a paradigm of feminist ideology that constructed by white women to minimize attention to their racial power and amplify attention to their sexual vulnerability. So it's kind of like, look at this, not that. Like, 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 look at our sexual vulnerability. Don't pay attention to that racial power that was over there. That's, that, that's not important, you know? <laughs> but I think this is to add to what you said in this article, you said, to construct this view of patriarchy, they had to throw out decades of social scientific scholarship, even though there was no empirical evidence that debunked that former scholarship. And I think what's important about that sentence is that when you do read a lot of this stuff, they're just saying stuff, but they're not actually citing any type of studies or scholarship to back up these new paradigms to um, overthrow the old ones. In fact, in a lot of the uh, intersectional feminist academic scholarship that I've read, and I think this is why standpoint theory kind of becomes extra important, uh, standpoint epistemology, which kind of says, as a black woman or as a this or as a that, you know, this idea that my occupying these multiple identities makes me enough of an authority and enough proof that I can just say this stuff uh, because my lived experience um, or my claimed lived experience trumps whatever type of scholarship, you know, um, that that came that came before it. So I think it's another kind of insidious aspect of um, intersectionality, even if it wasn't made explicit by um, Crenshaw herself. Uh, I think it's become part of the um, accepted idea, the idea that your standpoint, you the idea that you're occupying of an identity gives you um, is itself a form of evidence or empirical proof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think that that is um, ends up being part of this mix. I mean, you know, when you go back to the origins of standpoint epistemology and some of the Marxist feminism um, from the 70s, uh, you know, you start to get this idea that, well, you know, the working classes understand their situation. They have sort of tapped into a kind of knowledge that's not available to the bourgeoisie. And then the same thing sort of gets applied. Well, women have this sort of, you know, um, knowledge that they have access to that are not uh, not accessible to men. And, you know, you go down the line, you can add different, you know, race and stuff in. And then when you combine all that under intersectionality, then it's like, well, yeah, it's like working class Black women have access to a certain kind of knowledge that no one else has access to. And I don't think that it's controversial to say that, yeah, they have some kind of experience that other people don't have, um, whether or not it's monolithic or how much variation there is in there, um, depending on how many so-called intersections you want to put in and stuff. I don't think that that's controversial, but to go directly from experience to knowledge is an interesting move because the question then becomes, uh, is experience the same as knowledge and if so um does that mean that you're that it's impossible to misunder or is it that it's miss that's not possible to misunderstand your own experience and i'm not just saying that for black women or whatever but for anybody right if experience equals knowledge that it means that their experience just is knowledge. Um, and uh, But then it's not put into any other larger framework to interpret, to make sense of. Um, and so the, the, the question is then, well, can we do the same for white men? You know, how can someone criticize a white man when they don't know what it's like to be a white man? You know, there's got to be something other than, other than just the identities or just the perspective or just the standpoint. Otherwise, we'd have to start listening to Trump and how oppressed he is or what his special you know, um, uh, experiences or, or whatever the case may be, and then go all the way down the line for, for, for everybody else. 
that is a that is a great point and not only does um does it self-contradict but um they actually argue very much the opposite like for example they'll say uh standpoint of epistemology i as a uh black man or i as a black woman or i as a queer black woman or i as a disabled black queer woman i um my lived experience allows me to talk about um myself better than you can but if a white man was to make the same point like hey well hey as, as a white guy i feel like i'm not racist and in my lived experience should you know trump that uh, the, the logic actually becomes the opposite. It becomes um, because you're a white man, you have blind spots and you need people with all these identities to explain yourself to yourself. And suddenly uh, be, being, a, being a white guy, uh, your standpoint becomes less uh, reliable. And the best logic I can see from the from all the texts is I think there's this kind of idea that in addition to the standpoint and having the identity, there's also the hierarchy of um, oppression, like Having identities gives you more um, validity to speak on something and be centered and have the mic, but also being more oppressed gives you more validity as as well. So I think that's probably the logic they would say that causes the failure because there is in a lot of this discourse a competition to be the most um, oppressed as a way to say you earn the, you know, and one of the big things that comes out of Crenshaw is this idea that uh, Black women have to be universally more oppressed than Black men across every metric because because their um, not just moral authority, but their authority to speak on um, these issues to everyone else and over everyone else relies on. It's, it's kind of weird. Lack of privilege kind of becomes a privileged position in this in this um, discourse. It's it's a kind of inversion of um, values in a way, you know. It, Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah, and I th that's exactly what it is. And, um, you know, just an anecdote to connect this stuff about who can speak about what back to whether or not uh, intersectionality just adds up oppressions. Um, this, I think, is where the adding up of oppressions happens most obviously and most frequently. So, for example, uh, back when I was in graduate school, uh, I was back when I had um, social media. I, you know, this was in the, the the mix of the 2016 election. You know, everybody's all fired up about stuff, and uh, there are these two other grad students um, at my university that I'm friends with on Facebook and, and I knew them in person and they were saying something about like, oh, well, you know, uh, you need to vote for Hillary Clinton. And if you don't, you know, you're evil XYZ privilege. So, so. And so I just asked the question, well, hey, it, it recently came out through the emails published by WikiLeaks that in a secret speech to Goldman Sachs, Hillary Clinton said that she would enforce a, a no-fly zone in Syria that would, quote, her words, quote, kill a lot of Syrians. So I said, are you okay voting for a person who is going to carry out this policy knowing it's going to, quote, kill a lot of Syrians? And here's the response I got. Uh, it was twofold. One part of it was, well, you can't say that because you're not Syrian. You can't speak to what it's like to be Syrian. So you're not allowed to say that sort of thing. And I was like, I'm not allowed to wonder why uh, we would elect someone who says they're going to uh, enact, knowingly enact a murderous policy. I was like, I'm pretty sure I can just say, yeah, it would suck to be bombed if you're just a person in a country and some foreign government comes in and says, we're going to do this policy and it's going to kill a bunch of people in your community. Right. But because I wasn't Syrian, I wasn't allowed to say it's bad to bomb Syrians. So not only is this like just totally bonkers, but the next part of the justification was, well, 
well, you know, uh, they know better because they have more intersections than me. So, uh, you know, one of them was, um, uh, you know, so they're both women and one of them says, uh, identified as lesbian, one identified as bisexual, um, they both identified as non-white. One uh, was Asian American. The other one identified as non-white because she was Jewish. But I later found out that she converted to Judaism in her mid-20s. And then she talked about the Holocaust and how her people were killed. It was a very strange, cynical sort of thing to me. Um, she also had, uh, um, she also claimed a disability and she claimed that she came from a poor family. So she's got like the race, gender, sexuality, uh, ableism uh, and, and class intersection you know and then they would say to me oh well, you don't have those intersections so clearly you're not able to speak about this so like that was that was the so i was asking hey are we really willing to like back this kind of imperial violence and they were just like oh well we're more progressive than you because look at who we are and that's when i really started to see how this actually functions in in the real world um and so I guess if, you know, you identify as a uh, working class disabled Jewish lesbian, then it's cool to bomb Syrians. And if you don't, then um, then you're not allowed to talk about it. And and something that I think uh, to, to go more toward interest convergence and tie it into what you said, um, there's a big interest now among white people, especially um, white people on the progressive side of things. Um, it's like the white conservatives have an interest in trying to say um, one of two things. I feel like these are two big arguments that white people are were never that oppressive or whatever. Or it was like a big exaggeration. America was always great. Or they say, oh, yeah, you know what? White people, you know, may have been, you know, oppressive or whatever back in the day, but now it's all inverted. Now white men are the most oppressed group of all. They're the only group that you're allowed to um, criticize with, with impunity, where they try to actually, you know, invert, you know, the pyramid and make themselves the, the new most oppressed. But I feel like the interest of like the white progressive or the white liberal, the white leftist is, is kind of be like uh, kind of a combination of those two interests of the conservative, where they say, uh, well, they, they say, hey, white people were oppressive back in the day or, you know, are still oppressive, but I can opt out of that be with these other identities, you know? And I feel like that's where intersectionality kind of meets their interest and there's an interest convergence there. This idea like, um, well, if if we're the uh, sum or the interplay of our um, oppressed identities and the more oppressed identities you you have, um, the more privileged you, you can become in the discourse, I can opt out of that onerous oppressive oppressor category. Like, you know, I don't have to just see myself as an oppressor. I'm a I'm a woman. I'm I'm co-oppressed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and if I'm a uh I'm not straight, I'm non-binary. I'm I'm trans, I'm this, I'm that. And it's almost a way to kind of expand that tactic that you talked about with 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 women with white women of saying, hey, don't look at my racial power, look at my sexual vulnerability instead. You know, you can say, well, don't look at my racial power, look at my disability, look at my um gender, look at my sexual vulnerability, look at my um sexual orientation. And if you can have enough of those things it's like your whiteness almost becomes the least important part of you like you know it's like oh well hey i'm white but i'm oppressed in five in five other ways uh so mm-hmm. 
I can get to, um, you know, position myself as a press and I can even um, bully other white people. You know, it's a it's a very interesting um, benefit to white people, among others, of, of, inter- of intersectionality. I think it doesn't really get um, discussed enough, but I think you kind of hit on it with what happened to you at that, at that conference. Yeah, I mean, you know, and uh, it's, it's very interesting, too, because um, McKinnon's second essay about intersectionality, um, the Mapping the Margins essay, there's an entire middle section of that um of that essay that is about identity politics a term that appears in the in the title of the piece and i've had people tell me that intersectionality is not about identity politics so i wonder why it has such a prominent place in the title of one of the two foundational pieces of this school of thought but also the whole middle part of of the essay about identity politics is this sort of um uh way of using it as a mechanism for constructing coalitions so um just like we kind of talked about CRT owning race or or Marxism owning class or feminism owning sex or gender as as their topics of study or investigation. Um, Crenshaw argues that intersectionality can be used as the basis to form coalitions. So, for example, if there's some issue that seems to affect uh, women or females, right? And I, I don't use those interchangeably necessarily. I'm just using them interchangeably because that was interchangeable at the time um, for the most part, or at least in the language that um, these scholars were using, um, you know, if it's like, well, women sort of face this issue, then white women and black women and and uh, Latinas and everybody, you know, they can form a coalition on the basis of their similarities uh, of experience as women. Whereas then like, oh, there might be some kind of uh, racist policy. Well, now black women will have to form a coalition with black men to fight the anti-black racism. And so it's all of this like it's uh, it's it's all a sort of metric about, well, here's the categories you belong to, the identity categories, and then here's how you figure figure out who your coalition partners will be depending on what political thing you are fighting. But um, this is very strange because like, for example, let's say, you know, the fight to uh, protect reproductive rights and access to abortion. Well, do only human females uh, advocate that? And do all human females advocate that? Well, the answer to that is no and no. There are plenty of human males of of different races, ethnicities who uh, advocate access access to reproductive health care and uh, access to abortion um, for anybody who might be pregnant and does not want to want to be or not does not want to have a child. And there are plenty of women who, as we see in the whole uh, um, evangelical paleoconservative, you know, sort of um, movement that uh, oppose abortion as murdering innocent babies. So like, so even, even this idea of using intersectionality as a basis for deciding on what topics can I make coalitions with which other groups is doesn't even make any sense. Um, It seems like it would be based on what are the politics of the people and who can you get who can you garner to be part of that coalition um and so yeah so there is a kind of coalitional aspect to the second iteration of intersectionality um the way it appears in that in that 1991 essay by crenshaw and so um and so this is very interesting as well because it does sort of lead to this um this modern idea of you know um who, who can you form a coalition with to achieve what ends about which um, which policies? And that all depends on which part of your identity the policy seems to um, affect. <laughs>